On this, the final day of January, welcome on into Studio 2. Hello, I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, January flew by, did it not? Every month seems to fly by now, Cherry, I have to admit. Yeah, time goes so fast. And today, Avi, we have a pretty serious topic we're talking about today, death penalty. Capital punishment has been in the news over the past few weeks and in the past few days with that Alabama execution that was very controversial as well right in our backyard with the family of slain police officer Christopher Fitzgerald calling for the death penalty in that case. We have the family here, Pauline Fitzgerald, mother of Christopher, as well as Marissa Fitzgerald, his wife here to talk about that topic. We also um, will be speaking with Mark Bookman, executive director of the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation. He'll talk about public opinion, some of the expert discussions around the death penalty and death sentences. And so we want to hear from you on that topic. You can email studio2 at whyy.org. Our number is 888-477-9499. Yeah, a tough topic, but a necessary mm-hmm. topic to talk about. Uh, if you have opinions also on our second topic today, you can give mm-hmm. us a call, 888-477-9499. That topic is vitamins. A lot yeah. of us take vitamins. Um, there oh. is scant evidence that many of them work. The mm-hmm. regulation around vitamins is... I don't want to editorialize too much, but let's just say it's spotty. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk with an expert, Todd Cooperman, who's going to tell us about what's in dietary supplements, which ones work, which ones don't, which ones might even be harmful. Um, again, if you want to chime in, 888-477-9499. You can also email us, studio2 at whyy.org. But first, Cherry, want to get to some uh, local yeah. headlines, as we always do at the top of the show. And another serious headline to start the show, uh, you might have heard about this uh, serious story from the world of sports. Carter Hart is the goaltender, one of the goaltenders on the Philadelphia Flyers. His lawyer has confirmed that he has been charged with one count of sexual assault in Ontario. The timeline here is important. It's a bit complicated, but I'll try to walk you through it. Carter Hart was drafted by the Flyers in 2016. He was not yet a member of the senior team in June of 2018 when he attended a banquet with junior with a junior hockey Canada, which is sort of like, you know, before you get to the mm-hmm. senior team, you're on the junior team. These are very promising young players. There was a banquet. Afterwards, a woman says she was assaulted by eight members mm. of that junior team. Now, again, this was June 2018, and you might be thinking, why are we just talking about this Mm -hmm. now? Why are there just criminal allegations and prosecutions now? Well, in June 2018, this woman made the allegations to local authorities and to Junior Hockey Canada. Um, Investigations were undertaken and then pretty quickly closed. Then the woman filed a lawsuit in Canada Mm -hmm. um, that resulted in a settlement. That was many years later after she did not get any sort of resolution from the first round of allegations. After that lawsuit was filed, the criminal investigation was reopened. We don't know many details at this point, but we do know that that reopened investigation has led to Carter Hart, again, once considered one of the bright stars Mm -hmm. of the Philadelphia Flyers, surrendering to authorities on allegations of sexual assault related to this incident in 2018. Yeah, lawyers for Hart release a statement. They say that Hart is innocent and will provide a full response to this, quote, false allegation in the proper forum, a court of law. Until then, they are not commenting. 
Um, right now, Hart has was granted a sudden and indefinite leave of absence for, from the Flyers for personal reasons. That began last Tuesday. Um, the Athletic, Avi, did a whole detailed story about what the NH, NHL can do when a player is charged with a crime. And they have a wide range of powers per their player contracts. They can suspend players under criminal investigation or in cases where it could cause a risk to the reputation of the league. And right now, the deputy, the the commissioner, has declined to comment, and the NHL has not yet publicly released the findings of its own separate investigation of that 2018 incident. And the Flyers have also said very little about this. So right now, the sort of the the hockey people haven't said a whole lot in this case. They have not. But the police, um, we believe next week, are going to hold a press conference to talk a little bit more about what they found, and that could reveal more information about what exactly authorities think happened in 2018 in this hotel room in Canada. Yeah, and one thing we've seen is that, you know, the the leagues have gotten more serious when these type of allegations and investigations have come forth. So, um, and they take these allegations very seriously. So we're going to move on. Elon Musk, Avi, got a bit of a slap in the face yesterday (laughs) uh, when a Delaware judge ruled that the Tesla founder, uh, his $56 billion pay package for his work for the company was excessive and would be voided. So imagine, you know, your mm. pay package. They said, oh, nope, overruled. You can't have that money. How did no all one this- would bother to do that for <laughs> me, but yeah. Well, how did all this happen? Well, mm-hmm. a group of Tesla shareholders sued. They argued that Musk was overpaid in his 2018 negotiations and he had improperly set his own compensation with a very compliant board that lacked independence. So the judge in the case sided with these shareholders. They voided the compensation package. They said that, quote, the process leading to the approval of Musk's package was deeply flawed and that the package basically allowed Musk the right to acquire about 304 million shares of Tesla stock for about $23 a share, right? I checked it. The stock is actually worth about one hundred eighty nine dollars. Wait, how many shares? Three, like three hundred four million shares. Whoa. Yeah, a lot of shares. That's a lot of shares, which would help make him the wealthiest man in the world. Sure would. And would it help him finance whatever the heck he's trying to do with Twitter slash X? Afterwards, he posted on that platform he now owns, quote, Never incorporate your company in the state of Delaware. Many of our listeners know that many companies do incorporate Mm -hmm. in the state of Delaware, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of them, very specifically, is because Delaware has a separate court structure to Mm -hmm. adjudicate business cases. That's Mm -hmm. one of the main reasons many companies incorporate there, because they believe in the expertise and the predictability and the reliability of that court. There are actually, uh, people think it's taxes, but there are other states you can incorporate for for far, far lower taxes, South Dakota, Nevada, among them. People come to Delaware in part because of this court, the same court that has now said to Elon Musk, uh, yeah, this is not going to work. Your shareholders deserve better. Yeah, and you got to figure out how to pay this back or appeal or do something, which, of course, he will. But the big picture to me, Avi, is that this is, you know, this is putting out the warning signs to those those folks who are incorporated in Delaware and may give these big packages to their yeah. uh, executives. You could have shareholders or others filing lawsuit and a Delaware judge could say, hey, man, 
y'all giving those folks too much money. So we shall see. I don't know. I, I think it's very interesting. I wonder if we'll get more lawsuits. I didn't even know this was possible. I so didn't I know it was it, possible it puts it either, on my radar. but I, I'm sure a lot of people are happy. Um, also on our radar, this new decision by the Biden administration to pause federal approval of liquefied mm. natural gas plants. And this is going to have an effect in our region because it did seem like the city of Chester was going to get one of these liquefied natural gas plants. And now that's on hold. Yeah. Of course, you're thinking Chester's mad about this. It's going to cost the city hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenue, hundreds of jobs. Chester's mayor, however, uh, Stefan Roots, is quite happy about it because he was not a fan mm -mm. of this proposal to put the plant not in the city. Um, Chester already has an incinerator, a waste treatment plant. This was going to be along Chester's historic waterfront. And I believe the mayor's opposition uh, stems from that, the idea that Chester does not need more heavy industry as it tries to reinvent and revitalize itself. Yeah, and I have to mention Chester, which is home to about 32,000 residents. There are 98% people of color there. The community has been protesting for years, arguing that having all of these types of industries is environmental racism. And they've been trying to get rid of that incinerator. They didn't want this liquefied gas plant. Um, so this is... This, for them, this is a positive move because they say that having all these things in Chester, the water treatment plant, the incinerator, this would make it less desirable to live. And they're already struggling. Just if you're curious, by the way, the reason why you liquefy natural mm -hmm. gas is to export it overseas. Yeah. And that requires a pretty intense process mm -hmm. to get it into this liquid mm -hmm. form so it can be shipped out. Um, it's far less shippable than mm -hmm. you know, traditional petroleum and oil. So uh, that's the reason why these plants exist. And then the idea for people who support them is that it makes America, which is a, a great producer of natural gas, more powerful on the world energy stage because we can take that product that we produce in abundance here and ship it elsewhere overseas in other countries, I guess, would be reliant on yeah. our liquefied natural gas. But if we don't have the plans to do that, then you cannot go forward with that sort of theory of energy dominance. Mm -hmm. So, um, of we course, shall see. Uh, there's, there's a lot more to get into with liquefied natural gas. We won't do that today, but just putting that We should probably out. talk about that a little bit more. Maybe we should. In the future. So we want to transition now to our newsmaker segment. Temple University police officer Christopher Fitzgerald was fatally shot in February last year with school officials calling him the first campus officer killed in the line of duty. The alleged murderer is now on trial and the family of Officer Fitzgerald is calling on District Attorney Larry Krasner to seek the death penalty. Joining us now are two of those family members. Pauline Fitzgerald is the mother of Christopher Fitzgerald. Marissa Fitzgerald is Christopher's wife, also here. Pauline and Marissa, thank you for joining us both on Studio 2 today. Thank you for having us and giving us a voice. Thank you. Yeah, we really do appreciate you coming on the line. We know that this is difficult to talk about, but I wanted to ask you first, Marissa, how did the family come to this determination that you were going to publicly press the district attorney to seek the death penalty in this case? What were those conversations like, and, and how did you ultimately decide this is the route you want to go? Well, this case is a capital murder case, and it has aggravating factors to this case. Um, my husband is a police officer. Um, this individual also committed other crimes, other felony crimes. We are a strong family, and we're a law enforcement family. Um, the law is law, and we came together and said this is it's the law it's a capital murder case yeah which it's a, a 
deserves death. Yeah. And Pauline, I want you to chime in here. And I personally am very sorry uh, for your loss. But, you know, in Pennsylvania, the governor wants to abolish the death penalty. The DA has openly said he's against seeking the death penalty. I want you, you have years of experience in law enforcement and have experience working on death penalty cases. Why is it so important that you and your family let the public know where you stand on this topic? Uh, well, for starters, there was just a shooting today in Philadelphia. Uh, some officers were shot at, one officer was hit. Thank God he had um, extra protective gear on, so he had an extra protective vest. So it is a capital offense because Christopher was a law enforcement officer. That This defendant was also in the commission of doing robberies. He committed a robbery after he shot my son. He stood over my son and shot him. And so for those that are opposed to the death penalty, what kind of message are you sending to us? So not only am I law enforcement, but I am also now a victim. My, so my son is the victim and we're the family of a victim. What kind of message are you sending to us? To the, there was 410. What does that say to all of us, the multiple families, the multiple generations that now have to live a life sentence because our loved one was lost? Well, so I get that each case is individual, but... This is a kid from privilege. This is a kid that a male that came into the community. He was praying on temple students. He was also praying in an impoverished neighborhood, praying upon a neighborhood that is already already impoverished. He, he, he it was not random. He he shot my my son in cold blood as he as he laid on a cement. He stood over him and executed him. He had, he pumped additional shots into my son's body. Uh, and this is a case. Yeah, and just to clarify, uh, you're talking about the defendant, Miles Pfeffer, who uh, is a resident of Bucks County. Um, I, I want to ask you, Marissa, what do you think a death penalty determination and even ultimately an execution would do for your family in terms of um, healing from this? For one, it's it's justice, and it it sends a message that you have a a high profile capital murder case like this. The death penalty exists for a reason, for the most heinous crimes you can think of. It's we all have an opinion. In my opinion, it's the law. I'm not sure, as I think about it, I'm not sure what message it sends other than justice because Christopher is never coming back. My kids will never have their dad. Pauline will never have her son, nor will Joel. So even if when we do get justice, because we will, you still have that long hurt, that ache in your chest or that unraveling feeling inside knowing that you're going to wake up and you're going to have to live this life without our loved one. Mm. Yeah. So I think I hear you saying that this is really not about you and, and your healing. This is about uh, the effect on the community and the next person who might think about perpetrating a crime like this. Absolutely. Do I have that right? Absolutely. And, and I can hear the pain in your voice, Marissa. And so I want to 
ask you, and I also would like Pauline to weigh in here. I mean, typically the families uh, of victims um, that have been killed in this way, they have little say in the prosecution of a case, especially whether to seek death. It's usually left up to the jury, the judges. Do you think this should change? Should families have more input? I think the justice system in, is in place for a reason. I think the DA presents the case. He prosecutes the case. He helps build the case. And then I think it is up to a jury or a judge to make that determination. But taking it off the table, I don't know what message that sends. I get that sometimes there, um, you know, different defendants did, there's questionable. This is not the case with my sons. So I, I feel like, um, help me out, Lisa. Um, and, and, and Pauline, you're referring to the fact that District Attorney Larry Krasner has said that his, it is the policy of his office not to seek the death penalty. And you all are saying that you feel like that, it should not be removed from the table. It should still be an option in a case, especially one that in, like the one involving your son. Absolutely, it's a first degree felony. I mean, and he was in the commission of committing other felonies. He went on to, this is his first time court. This is not his first time doing things like this. Um. I want to thank you both for taking the time to join us today. And like I said at the beginning, I know this is not an easy conversation for you. And we appreciate you enlightening our listeners. Um, you just heard from Pauline Fitzgerald, mother of Christopher Fitzgerald, a police officer at Temple University who was killed. Um, Marissa Fitzgerald, as Christopher's wife, also joined us. Pauline, Marissa, thank you for being with us on Studio Two. Thank, thank you. you. And coming up, we'll dig deeper into issues around capital punishment. Our lines are open, 888-477-9499, or email studio2 at whyy.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. We're going to continue our conversation now about the death penalty. We just heard from the family of slain Temple Police Officer Christopher Fitzgerald moments ago. They are calling for the alleged murderer in that case to face the death penalty. Many Americans say they favor the death penalty, at least in certain cases. But public opinion has definitely shifted over the past few decades, and several states, including Pennsylvania, are looking at proposals to abolish the punishment. There's a lot to parse out here, especially with last week's controversial Alabama case using nitrogen gas, the recent death sentence for the Tree of Life synagogue shooter in Pittsburgh, and federal prosecutors seeking the same for the gunman who killed 10 people in a racist massacre at a Buffalo supermarket in 2022. Joining us now to continue the conversation in studio is Mark Bookman. Mark is the co-founder and executive director of the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation. He's also the author of A Descending Spiral, Exposing the Death Penalty in 12 Essays. Mark, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you for having me. Uh, we want to hear where you stand on capital punishment, you being the listener. Our lines are open, 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. 
And you just heard Mark from Pauline and Marissa Fitzgerald, the mother and wife of the of Christopher Fitzgerald, the police officer killed in the line of duty. The family wants the DA to seek the death penalty in that case. As someone who has worked on death penalty cases, I want you to react and put some context to this request. So, you know, I I, I don't have a a direct response to this. I think that when someone when when someone is victimized in a, a horrific, senseless, violent uh, act of murder, um, th- those victims uh, are feeling intense pain, yes. and they have the right to feel and say and think uh, whatever whatever they want. And I would I, I don't think I or anyone else uh, has the right to question their their feelings about this. Uh, they have suffered a loss that, that it's almost incomprehensible. Um, ha- having said that, I think most of us would agree that that victims can't dictate punishment. Um, that that it, you know there are there's you know for every victim of a of a senseless brutal crime, there are many many different feelings that victims that victims have uh, at all ends of the spectrum. But if we if we allowed victims to to dictate what punishment is 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 right. Then we have, you know, a totally chaotic, arbitrary system. So while I totally respect their views, um, I think our justice system uh, uh, cannot cannot uh, 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 allow victims to to dictate mm-hmm. the, the punishment. I think that they have a right to weigh in, and mm-hmm. these victims certainly have, mm-hmm. um, and and I, I think that that's appropriate. Um, but I, but they can't control yeah. the, the punishment. Yeah, Mark, you heard uh, several times that Fitzgerald talk about Fitzgerald's, excuse me, talk about the message that this would send to the community to would-be criminals. There's a lot of uh, chatter out there about the death penalty and its effectiveness as a deterrence. What do you think the research says? Well, the research is clear that the death penalty is not a deterrence. Uh, the states with the highest execution rate often have the highest uh, rate of violence as well. So there, there, there's there, there's no evidence of um, there's no evidence of deterrence. When when we talk about a message to the community, a huge percentage of the civilized world has done away with the death penalty. Um, uh, Pennsylvania is is uh, uh, very much in a minority uh, in in the in the world uh, uh, picture, and 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 slowly becoming a minority in the United States. Let me ask you though about that sort of trying to suss out correlation and causation when it comes to this deterrence argument, um, because it, it could be possible, right, that that penal, that the types of states that happen to have and use the death penalty frequently also have higher rates of gun ownership or other policies that might contribute to uh, increased levels of crime. Has the research been able to sort of isolate whether or not the death penalty is is the cause or not the cause of these higher rates of crime? I think that that's, you know, I'm not a social scientist and I'm not going to I'm not going to claim I am. But I think social scientists who have studied this issue for for decades, really longer than that almost, uh, have concluded that the death penalty simply is not a deterrent. If we just want to break it down for a minute, 
my experience tells me that there are, I don't want to be crass about this, there are two types of, of murderers. Mm -hmm. There are murderers who are low functioning and mentally ill and highly traumatized. They're not thinking clearly. Yep. And then there are murderers who are hoping to get away with it. Right. They're not thinking life without the possibility of parole is acceptable, but the death penalty is not. They're not, they're not trying to be caught at all. Um, so from a common sense point of view, you can kind of, you know, suss out the idea that, the, that, that it's really not a deterrent. But none of the studies show that it is. And, and you know, like I said, this has been studied, you know, for, for decades. And you've spent years working on death penalty cases from a public defender uh, point of view, and you have a very intricate knowledge of the system. So we'll put that out there. What did you learn over the years about just sort of how the system works and how um, it's shifted over time? So, so a, a couple of things, as you said in in the uh, in the introduction, uh, Cherry that. The popularity of the popularity, for lack of a better word, of the death penalty is is going down, mm -hmm. and and there's there's a reason for that. Um, we know a lot more now than we knew before. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, the death penalty was unpopular in the late '60s and early '70s as well. That was for for social reasons. Uh, it was not seen as an acceptable punishment. Today, it's decreased, at, just like it, it did in the '60s and '70s. But it's for knowledge reasons. Mm -hmm. In other words, we have DNA now. We know that we're fallible. We know yeah. that we've made a lot of mistakes. We know that 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 prosecutors uh, uh, periodically commit prosecutorial misconduct. Mm -hmm. We know that defense attorneys aren't always up to the task of properly doing their jobs. Um, we know that juries make mistakes. So for all those reasons, that knowledge has led to a decline in the in the in the interest in the death penalty or in the popularity of the death penalty. From a, from a practical point of view, my experience tells me one thing, that, that the death penalty is utterly arbitrary mm -hmm. in the sense that, that some prosecutors uh, seek it in every case. Some prosecutors don't think it's a, a, a good idea at all. Um, some, de some defendants are low functioning and more likely to get a death sentence. Uh, uh, some are 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 wise enough, or 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 recognizing the evidence in a sufficient way as to take uh, a, a plea bargain that's offered. That we're talking about just utter arbitrariness. I want to bring in some comments mm -hmm. here from listeners. Uh, Dexter commented on Facebook. I have mixed feelings on this, but I think I'm leaning toward being against the death penalty. I don't like the idea of killing someone as punishment. I think it gives them an easy way out. And also, I want to read this email from Hanok, who says, I served as the chaplain for a supermax federal prison. There were a few inmates sentenced to death. In my experience, the punishment should be to keep inmates who have committed heinous crimes in prison until they die. The attention received each time there is an appeal is painful mm -hmm. to the victim's families. And I want to build off of that, Mark, and ask you about appeals. Because here in Pennsylvania, technically, the death penalty is legal, even though there's been a moratorium since 2015. There are people who have been on death row, quote unquote, and yet we have not carried out an execution since 1999. There's only been three since 1962, and in all of those cases, uh, the the people accused waived their rights of appeal, right? And so that that leads me to this question of 
why is the appeals process so lengthy and and why in a state like pennsylvania do none of the people sentenced to death seem to ever actually be executed so you know pro-death penalty people routinely advocate shortening the appellate process um, that that would be a way to execute quicker um, the, the 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 reason we have such extensive appeals is exactly the reason that I said earlier we make we're making mistakes I, I handled um, I handled uh, uh, and I still handle the case of Terry Williams who came within hours of execution mm -hmm. it turned out that the prosecutor in that case had 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 cleansed the file of the abuse he had suffered at the hands of the victim right. Um, right. Uh, in another case that he had been convicted the prosecutor hid the uh, uh, the evidence of self-defense that ultimately led to that case being dismissed entirely uh, so so you know these these uh, results came out at the very end of the appellate process and typically uh, how long is that appellate process well it, it, I mean you know it I mean it's it's a case-by-case -case process there is there is no there is no dictated length um, we have we have uh, we take caution in Pennsylvania uh, uh, to make sure that the appeals are are, are really properly and thoroughly uh, um, litigated and, and exhausted exactly because we've seen so much misconduct and so so much uh, bad defense lawyering mm. and mistakes with innocent people being being released in fact we just had one recently um, so that's that's why the appellate process is is a long process and I, I think we should be thankful for it frankly and if you are just tuning in, we're talking about the viability of the death penalty and shifting perspectives on it with our guest, Mark Bookman, the co-founder and executive director of the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation. He's also the author of A Descending Spiral, Exposing the Death Penalty in 12 Essays. We want to hear from you. Please weigh in. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. I want to read this email from Deborah Mark, who says, The death penalty is cruel and unusual punishment. It costs more to have a person on death row than to be in prison for the rest of their life. I would much prefer someone who committed such a heinous crime to have to sit in prison for the rest of their life and muddle over why they're there. To me, this is punishment. I want to follow up on what Avi was talking about and getting to with regard to these appeals. Um, what happens when um, someone, when, you know, as they wait? I mean, some people can be on death row for decades. What is the cost of this? And is it just cheaper, as was said by our, our, our commenter here, to just have them be in life in prison and do death by incarceration? It's one of the very common and understandable misperceptions that the that that the death penalty is is cheaper, mm -hmm. uh, and that we're and that we're uh, uh, and that we're wasting money by by incarcerating people. Um, but uh, any number of studies have showed that the death penalty is actually two or three times more expensive. And we're talking we're not talking about about uh, um, abolitionist organizations like like mine. The state of Florida determined that the death penalty was two to three times more expensive. And and here's the reasons. It's cost of lawyers. I mean, yeah, what's it, the... It's the cost of lawyers, it's the length of appeals, it's the length of trials, which are which are are are, are significantly longer. It's it's judicial time. 
Um, Isn't the security, the, they're, they're on a death row, that is, is more expensive? That's even, right yeah. also, Chari. The, the, the death row itself is, I think, that the uh, the newspaper now in town that escapes me right now did a the study. Morning Call, I believe, yeah. The Morning Call found that it was a, a, an extra $20,000 per inmate per year, some or maybe 10000 whatever it was. Death row is more expensive as well. So when you, when you add all those costs together, um, it is two to three times more expensive to try to execute someone than to have them live in prison. Now, of course, we can take someone out behind City Hall and shoot them, but then right. we're you know quickening that appellate process. Like I said, runs a, a huge risk of even more mistakes than right. we've already detected. And, and I would say, you know, the 1962 execution in that case, that I believe the crime was committed in 1959. It was a far quicker process back then, it is not anymore. And I see your argument for why it should be a lengthy process. But of course, advocates for the death penalty and capital punishment will say, hey, back in the day, it used to be a much shorter process. I want to bring in an email now from Charlotte, um, who says, my sorrow for the victim's family, um, or my sorrow goes out to the victim's family, but the gospel message is do not kill. It's simple for me. I would feel vengeful as a victim's family member, but the job of the governance system is to curb our impulses. Charlotte brings up the gospel there. For many people, this is mm -hmm. a religious issue. Mm -hmm. And yet, when you look at polling data, you find that Americans are becoming, generally speaking, less religious. And yet, at the same time, they're also becoming more skeptical of the death penalty. Help me square that. So, you know, the polling in the death penalty can be tricky. Mm -hmm. um, if, you ask, if you ask someone um, whether or not they favor the death penalty, the, the at this point, the polling is slightly in favor of the death penalty. That's the wrong question to ask. Mm. The right question, and you see poll, poll, pollsters periodically asking the right question, is for someone who's committed a heinous crime, what do you prefer? Do you prefer uh, the death penalty, life without the possibility of parole, or life with the possibility of parole? You will find that a certain percentage are for life with the possibility of parole, a certain percentage are for life without the possibility of parole, certain percentage are for the death penalty. But when you add up the first two, they're in the majority. So yeah, you, you can't ask the question uh, uh, in an isolated way. You have to offer the options. When people know the options, they, by a, by a majority, prefer the options to the death penalty. And, and I wanted to follow up on that, and we have about a minute or so left. When you think about, um, you know, taking the death penalty off the table, you know, states looking at a possibly abolishing it, does it make sense to keep it, even if you don't use it often, just in case? I mean, we, we haven't seen uh, um, an incident where it's so heinous that that would be the only option, but should we leave it there? Is there an argument for leaving it there? Uh, uh, my experience, and I think the experience of, of, of anyone in my position, is that if it is available, prosecutors are going to use it. Uh, in, in Pennsylvania, while we haven't had an execution since 1999, while we haven't had an involuntary execution since 1962, there are currently over 55 capital cases pending in Pennsylvania. So, uh, you know, I, I, just having it on the books has led to this, mm -hmm. to, to, to 55 potentially capital cases across the state. And that's an expensive proposition mm -hmm. in any, any way you can look at it. 
Well, that was the voice of Mark Bookman, co-founder and executive director of the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation. Mark, thanks for joining us today on Studio Two. Thank you for having me. And coming up, Americans pour a lot of money into dietary supplements, but do they actually do anything for us? Well, ask that question. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Lots to come. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Avi wolf And I'm Cherry Gregg. Americans spend billions of dollars Every year on dietary supplements, close to $70 billion, Avi. I don't know if you knew that. I know it now. Yeah, on everything from vitamin D, B12, turmeric, fish oil, probiotics, and melatonin. I think I've spent quite a, quite spent a pretty like penny on that. Yeah. <laughs> but the research shows that for most people, supplements have little benefit. We get plenty of the vitamins and minerals we need from the foods we eat. But marketers are clever, and the industry mm-hmm. is loosely regulated. They can imply that supplements promote or support heart health, immunity, weight loss, memory. And in fact, a recent study did find small cognitive improvement for older people who took a multivitamin. Cognitively, Cherry, I'm a little confused. Mm -hmm. We wanted to make sense of all of this, the claims, the regulatory landscape. So we have asked Dr. Todd Cooperman to join us. He's founder and president of the ConsumerLab.com, which pulls supplements from the shelf to test whether they actually have the ingredients they claim to have. Todd, welcome to Studio Two. Oh, thanks for having me on, Avi and Cherry. Yes, Todd, excited to have you here. So just to give us the world that we're going to be talk, speaking in right now, what is a supplement or vitamin a, versus uh, a medication that you would buy over the counter at, say, a drugstore? Yeah, it's a good question. So dietary supplements include all the vitamins and minerals and uh, herbal supplements and a bunch of other ones like CoQ10 and red yeast rice, et cetera. The uh, OTC area is different. Those are drugs and those are things like, you know, aspirin, you know, mm-hmm. ibuprofen. Mm-hmm. And then you have the, uh, the prescription uh, drugs, uh, you know, and the prescription drugs and the OTCs are regulated at a much higher level than supplements. Supplements, uh, the regulations are loose, as was mentioned before. Um, and company, it's really up to the company to, to do a good job. They do legally have to provide 100% of what they state on the label um, through their expiration date or their best buy date. Um, but not, not all products do. Mm. We find problems with about one out of five. And I think in the general market, it's even worse because our, our goal is to try to help consumers find good products. So we're not actually like, you know, mucking through the, you know, through the, through Amazon, looking for all the tiny little brands. When you do that, you know, you can find that, you know, half the products might have uh, issues of not having what they claim or, uh, or having way too much. Wow. So Todd, who determines or, or what is the process for determining whether something belongs in the OTC medicine camp or the dietary nutritional supplement camp like how how do you decide which you know regulatory shoot the product goes down so, so you know if something's been out there for a long time a vitamin or a mineral it, uh 
it, it's going to pretty much stay in that camp unless there's some uh, uh, clinical study done, um, uh, uh, maybe with particularly high dosage, where they're tr like they that this happened with fish oil, for example. Fish oil is a you know common supplement with omega threes, um, but there were some studies done uh, to show some cardiovascular benefit. Oh, not all that strong, um, and those are. Design, those are designated as drugs, even though they're still really uh, highly purified, uh, concentrated fish oil. So um, uh, usually things that have been on the market, they're found in foods, um, uh, are, are, uh, they're in our bodies already. Mm -hmm. Those are typically supplements. And so let's, let's dig into the supplements a, l a little bit. And I want to start with the, the multivitamin. I, I take one every single day. <laughs> Is it necessary? It may not be. I mean, if you're healthy, well-nourished, um, you're not taking certain medications that might interfere with their absorption, like uh, proton pump inhibitors, you know, for people who have, uh, uh, you know, ulcers or uh, esophageal issues, um, or you haven't had, you know, uh, gastric bypass surgery, um, or, or, or certain drugs that might just interfere in other ways with, with uh, um, you know, vitamins and minerals. You, pro you probably don't need to be taking a supplement. Um, I think a lot of people take it as uh, an insurance policy. And mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're taking a very, like, kind of, I'd call it kind of a conservative multi, you're not exceeding, you know, the daily requirements. You're just, it's helping you get there. Um, th that's usually fine. You're, you're not going to hurt yourself unless it has lots of other ingredients thrown in there. You know, we've seen, you know, like women's multis that have all kinds of herbal, uh, you know, additives to them. Uh, they make you very excited about some proprietary blend of herbs or whatever. Those things is where we find most of the problems, um, such as heavy metal contamination. Um, and, and sometimes the pills are just not made properly, hmm. uh, you know, the, too much, too little. We find that gummies tend, tend to be worse in mm. terms of quality. Oh, why is no that? Why are gummies worse? And I was on my list of questions about the gummies. So no to gummies. Yeah. So um, gummies, you know, which really didn't exist as a, as a supplement until maybe uh, 15 years ago. Um, the originally they were just spraying on vitamins and minerals onto real candy gummies. <laughs> um, you know, the, the public liked it. They loved it. And so they, they got more sophisticated. The quality has improved with gummies. But some of the issues with gummies is, uh, say, uh, folic acid and vitamin C. Um, they don't play well in a, in a semi-liquid environment, which is a gummy, um, and they can break down faster, as can a lot of different uh, ingredients in, in a gummy. Um, so uh, interestingly, and a lot of people don't even know this, but a gummy is actually allowed to have like 250% uh, of its vitamin C or folic acid that's listed on the label um, because uh, manufacturers know that it will break, that those will break down over time. And so they're putting in a lot more which is not necessarily, you know, always a good thing. Mm. If you have a tablet or a caplet, the, the the rules are much stricter, you know, wow. um, on those. So, um, and and for other reasons, I, I don't love gummies. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like that, you know, parents give them to their kids. You know, like say a melatonin gummy at night. I mean, these are candy again. They're gonna get they're gonna get stuck to your teeth. So, you know, you may be going to sleep well, but. You know, kids are showing up at dentist's office with, you know, with with cavities, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to, because they're going to sleep at night with, with, you know, with candy in their mouth. So, um, yeah, yeah, we we have seen an improvement in, in quality with gummies. 
Um, but yeah. th there's still lots of lots of issues, and you can't even really put iron into a gummy very yeah. easily, and it tastes terrible. So yeah. you know, if someone's trying to get uh, a multivitamin to get their iron, especially like a younger woman, um, you know, it may not even be in there. Mm -hmm. So. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, we're yeah. speaking with Todd Cooperman, founder and president of ConsumerLab.com. We're talking about vitamins, nutritional supplements. Studio 2 at WHYY.org if you want to get in on this conversation with about five minutes left. Um, so uh, there were 4,000, I believe, dietary supplements on the market in 1994, Todd. There are somewhere in the neighborhood of 95,000 today. Uh, if these things don't work... Um, if it's bunk, then why are people so keen on taking them and why the big explosion in the market? Yeah, well, first, I would say they, they all don't work. You know, m many of them just may not be if you, for many people, they may not work because if you're already if you're not deficient in a vitamin or mineral, it's not going to work. But for people who are, you know, deficient, um, you know, then it is, you know, it could be a godsend. Uh, but I think the majority of people are not in that camp. Um and why is it exploded? Well, in 1994, there was a law passed uh, called Deshay for short, and it um, it allowed products to make claims on them. They're, they they can't claim to cure or prevent a disease, but that it can help maintain memory. You know, it can help with this, help with that, um, and that really spurred the market on um, and led to a huge increase. Uh, you know, in interest in supplements. Um, so that's what's driven all of this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and and everyone's always looking for a magic bullet. You know, for this or that. Yeah, uh, but there are you know supplements that do work. Melatonin, uh, you know, really does help you fall asleep. Um, you take you know 20, 30, 45 minutes before you want to go to sleep. It can actually help trigger sleep. And um, and and I wanted to ask you a couple of specifics because one of the categories that I think could possibly be dangerous is sort of the metabolism boosters. And I wanted mm -hmm, to get your take mm -hmm. um, because you know, are there instances where a supplement could be dangerous or harmful? And, I, and I'm throwing out this metabolism booster, but are there categories where you should be more cautious? Sure, there are lots of them, <laughs> more than we have time for right now. But, um, you know, even some of the herbal extracts, you know, uh, uh, like green tea um, uh, extracts can cause uh, liver injury. Um, uh, too much, uh, you know, even certain vitamins and minerals uh, can cause injury if you take them, you know, long term at high dosages. So, I mean, I don't know what multi you're taking, Cherry, but, mm -hmm. you know, you make sure that it's not, you know, going above uh, kind of the upper limits, which are also not even shown on, on labels. If you go to Consumer Lab to our site and you look at Consumer Lab slash RDAs, you'll see how much you actually should be getting and, uh, you know, from your full diet, which uh, would include supplements. And how much is too much in there? Uh, these are the, again, these these upper limits. And I want to shoehorn another question because I've seen a lot of people taking collagen now. You know, they're mixing uh -huh. it up in, in smoothies and all sorts of stuff, supposedly to plump your skin and make you, you know, have your hair grow, all these different things. Does collagen work? Um, there's been a number of pretty small studies funded by manufacturers um, that show a very modest improvement, you know, like 8%. Although, you know, when I tell that to, uh, you know, some, my wife or others, I may say, well, you know, that's 8%, that's something. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So to me, that's like, you know, it's pretty, pretty minor, but um, that's probably base, you know, best case scenario. And I should say at Consumer Lab, what we do is, you know, we go out, we buy these products, we have reviews on collagen and, and every, every supplements we've just mentioned to help people identify, you know, uh, 
understand what we're finding and which we think are the best uh, products in that category. You talked a moment ago about labels. I just want to read a label uh, from a popular multivitamin brand, Nature Made. This is what it says in the label of their men's multivitamin bottle. It says it supports a healthy immune system, muscle health, and cellular energy mm. production. So what you're saying, Todd, is that they don't have to prove that any of that is true? Um, they they might have to support that, have some data. They don't show it to the FDA before they put that out. Um, but really, when you when you boil that down, you know, to show that it helps, I think you said helps support or something like that. Yeah, um, or supports a healthy immune you know, system. What, yeah, so I mean that that's a, that's a very weak word, you know. Uh, mm, it's not saying yeah. it's going to actually help you, you know, fight an infection or you know, you know, prevent a cold. It, it can't say that, um, and the evidence is typically not there anyhow. And we only have a minute left. What is your advice for folks who, you know, they want to improve their health? They may see a supplement as an opportunity to do that, but you know, don't want to get sick from it or, you know, don't want to spend money on things that don't work. What's your advice? Yeah, I would, I mean, I wouldn't take any supplement until you, you really know why you need it, um, how much you're supposed to take, you know, what type of product exactly should it be, you know, and make sure that it's a product that's been tested by a third party, like a consumerlab.com, um, to make sure that it actually has what it claims and it's not contaminated. It will break apart and release its ingredients. Um, so there's a lot of homework that you should be doing before you, you start taking something, especially something you might be taking every day. There you have it. That is Dr. Mm -hmm. Todd Cooperman, president and founder of ConsumerLab.com, giving us the vitamin nutritional supplement landscape. Thank you for joining us, Todd. My pleasure. Thank you. So, Avi, I think I might have to clean up my supplement closet. Are you, are you really? Yeah. I, I feel like there's You're some. Gonna scale it back? I'm going to have to scale it back. Go to yeah. ConsumerLab.com. I will be checking it out. And that, friends, is it for our show today. Can I give a piece of advice to folks? Please do. They should supplement their audio listening with Studio oh, 2. good advice. They can download us wherever they get their podcasts. Yes, and please rate and review. And thank you to our producers, Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks engineered today's program. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Vitamin A Wolf Manera. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. We will talk with you tomorrow.